0: Hi, this is Nick. And this is Sir Ian Dangerous. And we are from the Busted Wide Open podcast. The show that drops the big elbow on the hottest topics in sports entertainment and the world of professional wrestling. And you are listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Blueberry offers the best media hosting, accurate listening stats, and their all-new PowerPress Deluxe sites a no-set-up WordPress website for your podcast, and it comes with all the necessary links to share your show with the world built right in. Head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com slash dream to sign up for media hosting, a PowerPress Deluxe site, get that podcast you've been dreaming about started, and get your first month for free. That's www.orbitaljigsaw.com com/dream. And now on to the show. Warning. This episode contains details of violent deaths, the details of which may be disturbing and also involve young children that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. How many of you out there listening? watch The Twilight Zone when you were kids. How many of you are too young to have no idea what I'm talking about? Regardless, you may have seen or heard of the show, and it's been in syndication forever, and it's been revived a couple of times. So if you haven't heard of the show, then I don't really know what your excuse is. The Twilight Zone is a television anthology series created by Rod Serling. As a child... Rod was a fan of pulp fiction stories, and pulp fiction, or pulp magazines, were inexpensive fiction magazines that were published from 1896 all the way up until the 1950s. They derived their name from the cheap wood pulp paper in which magazines were printed on, as opposed to the magazines that were printed on a higher quality paper, which were called glossies or slicks. A typical pulp magazine had 128 pages with ragged, untrimmed edges. These gave rise to the term being used in reference to the -the run-of-the-mill, low-quality literature. Pulp magazines were the successors to the penny-dreadfuls, dime-novels, and short fiction magazines of the 19th century. Although many respected writers wrote for pulps, the magazines were best known for their lurid, exploitative, and sensational subject matter. Modern superhero comic books are sometimes considered to have descended from the hero pulps, which were pulp magazines that often featured illustrated, novel-length stories centered around heroic characters. So having been a fan of these as a child, Rod sought topics with themes such as racism, government, war, society, and human nature as a whole he decided to combine these interests of his in a way that would present these topics on television during a time when such issues were not commonly addressed. By the 1950s, Rod had solidly established himself as one of the most popular names in television. He became famous for not only writing televised dramas, but also for being an open critic of the limitations of television, mainly censorship by sponsors and networks, racism, and war. In 1959, he created The Twilight Zone. The episodes were considered to fall into a variety of genres, including fantasy, science fiction, suspense, and psychological thrillers, often ending with a chilling or unexpected twist, and was usually accompanied by a moral to the story. The show's writers frequently used science fiction As a way to speak out on social issues yet the sponsors and networks who would censor controversial materials from television dramas they weren't that overwhelmingly concerned with the seemingly innocuous fantasy and sci-fi stories of the twilight zone a critical and popular success the show introduced viewers to science fiction and fantasy tropes the original series which was filmed entirely in black and white ran on CBS for five seasons from 1959 to 1964. The success of the series led to a feature film, a radio series, a comic book, a magazine, and various other spin-offs that spanned five decades, including two television revivals. The first revival ran on CBS and in syndication in the 1980s while the second ran on UPN from 2002 to 2003. TV Guide ranked the series fifth in their list of the 60 greatest television dramas of all time. Full disclosure, I personally did not watch The Twilight Zone as it ran in syndication a lot when I was a kid. It seemed like it was always on TV, and it really kind of creeped me out. I just remember always thinking how weird it was every time I tuned into the channel it was on. I wouldn't have understood all of the underlying themes and morals of the stories anyway. I'm also not much of a science fiction fan, not then and not so much now, but I did find researching this story really interesting nonetheless. Today we are going to delve into the very dark story within this dark television series. One that, when all is said and done, forever changed the landscape of safety and filmmaking forever. In today's episode of California Dreaming, the tale of the Twilight Zone disaster, part one. Before I get into the story, I wanted to talk a little bit about deaths on movie sets. Something it seems the movie industry likes to try to sweep under the rug. For example, in 2012's The Avengers, a huge $1.5 billion Hollywood blockbuster, a movie many of you likely went to see. But what you probably never heard about was a man named John Settles. On May 6th, 2011, he had climbed onto the back of a truck at Universal Studios in Los Angeles to check a delivery headed to an Avengers set in New Mexico. He fell backwards, striking his head on the pavement, fracturing his skull. He died the next day. What's more, He had had only a few hours of sleep the night before he was called back to Universal Studios to pick up the Avengers delivery, according to his daughter. He had been working on the film for weeks at that point, even ditching out early on his own 65th birthday party a month earlier to fulfill a delivery for the film that, incidentally, would go on to dominate the box office the following summer. After John's death, Answers from the powers that be as to how this could have happened were not easy to come by. The family was also unsuccessful in attempting to obtain security footage of the accident. Cal OSHA, or the Occupational Safety and Hazard Administration, investigated John's death and eventually cited two safety violations, not having proper handholds on the back of the truck and not supplying drivers with first aid kits. The filming company, which is affiliated with the Walt Disney Company, paid a $745 fine. Disney never responded to specific questions of the incident, opting to issue a statement stating, The safety of our cast and crew is always a top priority, and we expect the highest standards of compliance from our production teams to ensure it. Marvel also had no comment regarding John's death. In the end, his family was able to secure a modest workers' compensation settlement. However, the production company did not give any of the crew members time off to attend John's funeral, but fortunately, many of them were able to help with donations to assist in covering funeral costs, and no contributions were made by Marvel or Disney. Another Disney film with its sights set on becoming yet another Hollywood blockbuster was 2013's The Lone Ranger. The film didn't break box office records, but it did earn the distinction of having the largest fine related to an accident on a set levied upon it, a penalty of $61,445 for the death of Michael Bridger a diver who drowned during the movie's production. Michael was called to clean a 24-foot tank on September 12, 2012, which should have been an easy-peasy job for the Redondo Beach, California resident born and raised, who had been a diving enthusiast since the age of 15. But it was inside that tank where Michael, being out of the view from everyone else on the set, died all by himself. The Cal OSHA investigation later determined that the production company had several safety violations, including failing to adequately train for their dives, not having the proper documentation of dives, allowing the backup diver to leave Michael in the tank alone for as long as 10 minutes, failing to have someone on the set who was CPR certified and trained, and not requiring the divers, including Michael, to turn in results of a physical exam. Michael made his living in the water. He was a diver, a fisherman, and on occasion, grip on the movie sets. While cleaning the water tank during the production of The Lone Ranger, he had suffered a heart attack and died. Both his mother and his brother attempted to file a lawsuit over Michael's death but they were informed that there would be no case because they were not dependents, and according to workers' compensation laws, they are written in such a way that made them uneligible to sue, despite the fact that the OSHA investigation concluded that some of the violations were significant enough to pose a real possibility that serious injury or death could have resulted from the hazards created by the violations. While some exceptions do apply, including if the injury was caused by serious or willful misconduct by an employer, workers and their families are barred from suing in most cases. Michael's ashes were spread over the ocean at his memorial service. The studio did not send flowers, they did not send a card, and his name did not appear in the film credits. And Disney, true to form, had no comment regarding Michael's death. Each year, people on both sides of the camera are injured on set during the production of movies and television shows. And it's not just the obvious risks like explosives on sets or stunts, but also stuff like falling off of ladders and equipment toppling over. But these incidents tend to be kept as quiet as possible, as the financial consequence for both production companies pales in comparison to the money that's going to be made when the film or show is complete. According to the Associated Press, since 1990, at least 43 people have died on sets in the United States, with more than 150 left with life-changing injuries but it's doubtful that this is the full scope of the entirety of injuries and deaths on set. It was also discovered that some major accidents weren't in the investigation records and did not appear on OSHA's database. Several fatal set accidents in the United States, all of which were outside the usual production sets in California and New York, were missing from the database most notably the 1993 shooting death of actor Brandon Lee during the filming of The Crow, a story which I'm going to visit in depth in the near future. Despite a 1,500-page file on the investigation into Brandon's death, it wasn't listed on OSHA's database, which was later blamed on a clerical error. Brandon's death gained worldwide attention and led to changes in the ways firearms are treated on movie and television sets. But the fines levied in the aftermath of his death were paltry. OSHA fined the production company $84,000, making it the highest fine levied since 1990, but later lowered the penalty to $55,000. The Crow grossed more than $50 million. In yet another example, OSHA fined Paramount Pictures, $21,000, for the death of a worker on a set in Louisiana. He was killed while operating an aerial platform during the production of G.I. Joe Retaliation. After more than six years, the penalty is still being contested, while G.I. Joe made more than $122 million in North America alone. OSHA fines are often rigorously contested by studios and production companies, and prosecutions are almost never pursued. Most workers are barred from suing, and those who do, find witnesses often resist coming forward out of fear of being pushed out of the industry, which is highly competitive. The Associated Press also found that in almost half of the fines OSHA levied against studios or production companies were later reduced from approximately $404,000 for 15 fatality accidents all the way down to 236,000 by the numbers from 1990 to 2014 there were at least 194 serious accidents on film and television sets in the United States from 1990 to 2014 there were at least 43 fatalities from 2000 to 2016, there were at least 37 fatalities internationally. From 1990 to 2014, OSHA investigated 30 fatal accidents in the United States. The number of accidents that resulted in fines was 105, and of those, the number that were reduced was 49. The number of accidents that occurred in California was 170. Most injuries are fractures, with 55, and the number of amputations is 25. There has only ever been one criminal prosecution, but I will talk about that a little bit later on. And so, we get to the heart of this story. 1983's The Twilight Zone, the movie. It was an anthology film version of the television series that remade three classic episodes of the original series along with one original story. The film was produced and directed by Steven Spielberg and John Landis and was also directed by Joe Dante and George Miller. The film starred Vic Morrow, Scatman Crothers, Kathleen Quinlan, John Lithgow, Dan Aykroyd, and Albert Brooks. There were also several actors who had starred in the original series that had roles in the movie remake. Landis directed the prologue and the first segment. Spielberg directed the second, Dante the third, and Miller the final segment. I wanted to pause for a moment and take a closer look at the work these four directors are best known for. You may have heard of Steven Spielberg, He's directed several notable films including Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., Hook, Schindler's List, Jurassic Park, Saving Private Ryan, and many, many more. He's also been the executive producer, producer, writer, and appeared in a handful of countless other productions. Joe Dante, is best known for such films as Gremlins, Amazon Women on the Moon, The Burbs, Small Soldiers, and Explorers. Explorers is the film that I talked about last month in which River Phoenix made his film debut. George Miller has directed such notable films as the Mad Max series, The Witches of Eastwick, Lorenzo's Oil, Babe, and Happy Feet. Today, we are mostly going to focus on director and producer John Landis, who is probably most known for directing Michael Jackson's music video for Thriller, but he's also known for films such as Animal House, Blues Brothers, An American Werewolf in London, Trading Places, Coming to America, and Beverly Hills Cop 3. He was also the director of of the segment of the Twilight Zone movie that included a scene that went terribly awry. Spielberg was a huge fan of the Twilight Zone television series in its original run. He had made it his goal that sometime in his career, that he would somehow get to direct an episode, some way, somehow. That opportunity came in 1982 when Warner Brothers offered him the Twilight Zone movie project. He decided that he wanted to co-produce and co-direct the ambitious project with his good friend, John Landis. Landis had found success in the early 80s with some projects that I had mentioned earlier, Animal House, An American Werewolf in London, and of course the iconic music video for Michael Jackson's hit Thriller. Spielberg appreciated Landis' unorthodox approach to filmmaking, his vision when it came to makeup and special effects, and even his ability to convince the mayor of Chicago to drive the Bluesmobile through one of their local landmarks. Landis had this reputation for skirting the rules, but it would be this very aspect of Landis that would end up leading to a very dark period not only in his career, but also for Hollywood as a whole. Landis readily accepted the proposal to work on the film, since there were going to be four parts to the anthology. They decided to bring on two more directors, Dante and Miller, to direct those. Landis' portion of the movie would begin filming first. His part was based on the 1961 Twilight Zone episode entitled a quality of Mercy. The original storyline occurs on August 6, 1945, the day the Enola Gay dropped the world's first atomic bomb on the city of Hiroshima, Japan. A young, zealous American second lieutenant in World War II orders his war weary soldiers to make a most certainly deadly attack on a group of sick and wounded Japanese soldiers holed up in a cave in the Philippines. A sergeant, who can see the men have had enough of war, tries to talk him out of it. The attack will accomplish nothing but senseless deaths on both sides. But the second lieutenant pulled rank and stood firm by his orders, as he was intent on proving himself to everyone. He also berates everyone in the platoon, demanding that they shape up. Suddenly... He finds himself traveled back in time, three years earlier in the war, and this allows him to gain a new perspective. He is now a lieutenant in the Imperial Japanese Army and is ordered to attack a group of American soldiers in a cave. He tries to dissuade the captain from following through with the attack, making the same argument that the Americans inside the cave pose no threat and that they should just be left alone. The Japanese captain refuses to listen, accusing him of having jungle fever, or that he's lost his nerve or is scared. He commands him to listen or stay behind with the wounded, so he refuses to back down. The captain relieves him of his command of his platoon and moves the company forward to attack. His mind begins reeling, And he suddenly finds himself back as himself in 1945 with his men telling him that they've gotten word that the A-bomb has been dropped and they've received orders to fall back and to not attack the cave. And in the end, the lieutenant is relieved as a result of this news. The remake of this segment uses many of the same themes as the original, but the filmmakers were going to be tasked with coming up with an alternate ending when all of this is said and done. I will explain both endings to you, and I will explain exactly why the ending needed to be changed a little bit later. For years, Rod Serling, the creator of the original Twilight Zone television series, entertained the idea of making the show into a theatrical production but he was never really able to find the time. On a number of occasions, he wrote a couple of synopses, and in each one, he envisioned multiple stories in one production. Some of his proposed stories were eventually brought to the big screen by Spielberg. Most notably, Rod's proposed premise of a story about an alien who lands on Earth and is hounded and hunted by adults and befriended by a child. Sounds like the plot of E.T., doesn't it? It is from Rod Serling that Spielberg got the idea for E.T. But as far as the Twilight Zone on the big screen, it would not come to fruition until some years after Rod's death when Warner Brothers approached Spielberg about the movie. The rights to the movie had been acquired from Rod's widow, Carol Serling, in the 80s, and development soon began. As I told you, Spielberg took a strong interest in the movie early on. It was his desire to break up the film into four separate stories with four different directors at the helm, rather than one two-hour-long story. He next tapped Landis, who was also a Twilight Zone enthusiast, followed by Joe Dante, the next one to become involved. Dante was more interested in making four new original Twilight Zone segments, as he felt there was plenty of material that had never been used, but the studio insisted on remakes. By the time the movie was formally announced, it was presented as a mixture of old and new stories. By June of 1982, the fourth and final director, George Miller had been announced. The budget for the film was relatively low, being an estimated $10 million, with $2.5 million allotted to each of the four segments. Production was to begin that summer, with the release date projected to be during the 1982 Christmas season. There was so much excitement and enthusiasm for this film, and its theoretically endless potential for sequels, with different writers and different directors, but none of that would ever come to fruition. So Landis was up first. It would be the film's first installment and the first to be filmed, and it was the most serious of all the stories. The premise was the main character, Bill Connor, was a man who blamed his financial troubles on the other races. Thus, he is forced, via the Twilight Zone, to confront situations far worse than his own, as the very people he blames. The segment, along with the entire movie, was meant to be completed in the true spirit of the old television show by adding many of Rod Serling's own political and moral stances into it. And Landis's segment would be the most political episode out of the four films. When Landis completed his first draft of this segment, entitled Time Out, it needed some refinement. The studio executives were concerned that audiences might feel somewhat put off with a character as unsympathetic as Bill, that he was too harsh and too ugly. They felt that he was unwatchable. So Landis began thinking of ways to have Bill somehow redeemed in the end of the segment. So, he came up with the idea of having Bill ending up in the thick of the Vietnam War circa 1967. But he is seen as a Viet Cong soldier. He is to encounter two indigenous children in an otherwise barren village. At first, he is suspicious of them, but then he ends up asking them for help. In talking with the children and through the dialogue, The character arrives at an intellectual and emotional realization in that moment that these children and he are in the exact same position and that they are victims, not the enemy. And Bill's character comes to understand that. And just as he is experiencing this moment of enlightenment, an American helicopter appears and recognizes Bill as being a Viet Cong, and they launch an attack. The village around them is quickly destroyed, but Bill, instead of running away and saving himself, he ends up redeeming himself by rescuing the children, casting him as a hero in the end. So that's how Landis's segment of Time Out was scripted and was to be filmed as such. The opening narration of his segment reads as follows. You're about to meet an angry man, Mr. William Connor, who carries on his shoulders a chip the size of the national debt. This is a sour man, a lonely man, who is tired of waiting for the breaks that come to others but never to him. Mr. William Connor, whose own blind hatred is about to catapult him into the darkest corner of the Twilight Zone. In the movie's adaptation, Bill Connor, played by actor Vic Morrow, is very bitter after having been passed over for a promotion in favor of a co-worker who is Jewish. He finds himself drinking in a bar with some of his friends, spewing racial slurs towards Jews, blacks, and Asians. A black man sitting nearby asks him to stop so bill angrily storms out of the bar but when he walks outside he finds himself in nazi occupied france during world war ii as a pair of ss soldiers who are patrolling the streets notice him they stop to interrogate him but he is unable to effectively communicate with them because he does not speak german bill attempts to run from the ss officers and a chase ensues He ends up on the ledge of a building where the officers take aim and open fire at him. Bill falls from the ledge, but when he lands, he suddenly finds himself in the rural South during the 1950s. He is spotted by a group of Ku Klux Klansmen, but they see him as an African American person whom they intend to lynch. Bill tries to explain to them that he is white, but they are not listening as he is not appearing to them as such. In an attempt to escape the Klansmen, he jumps into a lake, but then surfaces in a jungle during the Vietnam War. But he is seen as a Viet Cong soldier. And this is where Bill is supposed to encounter the young children in that village. And this was supposed to be the final shot for his segment of The Twilight Zone. The filming location Landis was using for Vietnam was known as Indian Dunes, a 600-acre or 2.4-square-kilometer filming ranch located near Six Flags Magic Mountain in Valencia, California. It had been a favorite location for filmmakers for its versatility, its wide-open areas which allowed for more pyrotechnic effects, and it was possible to shoot night scenes there without city lights visible in the background. It also had a diverse topography, including green hills, dry desert, dense woods, and a jungle-like riverbed along the Santa Clara River. All of these features, having made it suitable to stand in for locations from all over the world, including the American Southwest, Brazil, Japan, France, Germany, Africa, Afghanistan, Burma, Central America, Myanmar, and Vietnam. It was used for Vietnam more often than any other backdrop. It was also popular for 80s television shows such as The A-Team, MacGyver, The Fall Guy, and The Incredible Hulk. The land went back to being used as a farm in 1990, when the kinds of productions that called for that type of location were no longer popular in the making of movies and television anymore. Now I'm going to tell you how the final scene was written. Then I'm going to tell you what actually happened. And then I'm going to tell you what made the final cut. Let's start with the script. The nighttime scene called for Vic Morrow's character, Bill, to carry the two Vietnamese children across the river while being pursued by U.S. soldiers in a helicopter. I was actually able to view the entire script of Landis's portion of the movie, so I will read the final scene as it was written. Bill stands, his arm and leg aching, and he tries to get his bearings. He can see no one, and he hears no one. Slowly painfully he makes his way through the swamp Bill carefully enters the area but finds no one the place is deserted after verifying that he is alone he sits down on the ground his back leaning against the wall of a hut he hears something looking around in a panic he sees two small children Vietnamese a boy three years old and a girl, maybe five. The children used in the scene were actually six and seven, and I will tell you much more about them later. They are both ill-clothed, nearly naked. The boy and the girl walk over to Bill. Bill stands and looks around, very worried. Bill says, Where are your parents? The boy and girl just look at him. Bill says, Are you by yourselves? The boy takes Bill's hand. Bill says, I need help. Can you help me? Can you take me somewhere safe? Bill realizes that these kids are as helpless as he. Bill says, do you have any food? I guess you don't have any beer either. Bill's arm hurts and he sits back down. The boy sits next to him and immediately falls asleep on Bill's lap. To the girl, Bill says, Is this your brother? The girl stares. Bill says, I won't hurt you, baby. I'm just as lost and scared as you are. The little girl hands Bill a broken and naked Barbie doll. Bill, genuinely touched, says, Thank you, honey. Thank you very much. Suddenly, loud noise and wind as a Huey helicopter appears from over the cliff and hovers over the village. Bill stands as both kids cling to him in terror. Bill shouts, help us. I've got two children down here. The machine gun mounted in the chopper opens fire on Bill. He grabs the kids and runs for cover. Bill screams, Stop it. I've got children here. Stop it. Stop it. Bill, clutching the kids, crouches behind the hut. The helicopter turns on a powerful spotlight and hovers over the river, sweeping it with beams. Bill says to the kids, I'll keep you safe, kids. I promise. Nothing will hurt you. I swear to God. The helicopter makes another pass, and then one of the huts explodes in a spectacular fireball. Bill, holding the children in his arms, makes an extraordinary effort and runs for the shallow river. The helicopter spots them, and guns blazing heads towards the river. As Bill is carrying the kids, he desperately makes his way through the water. The helicopter makes several passes, bombarding the area. Bill makes it to shore and sees a wooden shed, and making a superhuman attempt, he manages to get all three of them inside. He stacks the wood inside against the door, then huddles with the kids in the corner. Bill, out of breath, says, Don't worry, you guys. I won't let them hurt you. And that would have brought the Vietnam portion of Landis's segment to a close. But it would not happen that way. This helicopter was being piloted by Vietnam War veteran Dorsey Wingo. During the nighttime filming, Wingo stationed his helicopter 25 feet or 7.6 meters from the ground. He actually wrote an autobiography and detailed his versions of what happened. Although his book has been largely criticized as self-serving and lacking any kind of remorse, or attempt to take responsibility for what was to come. But I'm going to reference an excerpt from his book where he describes the scene on the set that night, as it is a pretty unique perspective. Wingo writes, As I guided the Huey into position for the final shot, veteran actor Vic Morrow stood at my 2 o'clock with child actors Micah Din Lee and Renee Chen clutched in his encircling arms. They were brightly illuminated by the ship's powerful night sun spotlight, focused by production manager Dan Allingham from the helicopter's left front seat. Three million candle power lit up the trio with an eerie, wobbling luminescence. Vic was straining, looking towards the river, and listening for our machine gun fire his call to action. Two stuntmen in the rear of the Huey manned the M60s, waiting for us to echo the fire cue. I took up a bearing on a bamboo structure, 45 degrees to my right, and down 45 degrees, larking our prearranged position by keeping two focal points aligned, a technique sharpened from years of flying USFS firefighter rappel teams in his small clearings in tall timber. Director John Landis spoke calmly into the handheld portable VHF radio, lower, lower, lower. I complied slowly, switching to alternative focal points in order to hold our position just off the shoreline. Then came Landis's call for action, fire, 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 at which point our machine gunners opened up and all three explosions occurred along the cliff to our right in the prescribed tempo. Thousand one, thousand two, thousand three. As the fireballs heated up the night, Vic charged into the water with the children, moving north towards the opposite shoreline. Pulling a touch more power, I introduced left pedal, started the rehearsed nose left turn, and eased the cyclic forward. Dan followed Vic with the light. It was then, that special effects technician, Jim Chamomile, for reasons only known to himself and God, raked one electrified nail across several others that were wired to multiple gasoline firebombs intolerably close to the low-hovering helicopter, sending the chopper and 100-odd movie makers and onlookers into a living hell. And three... Vibrant human beings to their shocking deaths. When the pyrotechnic effect was detonated, the helicopter's tail rotor was still directly above it, and as it went off, it was struck by the mortar effect, causing the rotor to fail and detach from the tail, and as a result, the low-flying helicopter began to spin out of control and downward, Vic suddenly became startled by the noise, causing him to lose his grip on Renee Chen. The next minute or so is very graphic. And I normally don't like to include these kinds of details. I don't even like speaking them. But in this case, I felt like it was important to know and understand what happened on that movie set that night. The magnitude of what took place, and what it meant for everything that was to follow in the wake of this tragedy. When Vic dropped Renee in the water, he went to lift her back up into his arms, and that's when the helicopter came crashing down sideways on her, crushing her to death. Vic and the child he was still holding, Micah, They were decapitated by the main blades of the helicopter. The cameras rolling captured everything. Landis rushed down to the scene along with his assistant. The six people who were on board the helicopter made it out alive, stunned, some injured, but alive. Landis' assistant was the one who discovered Vic Morrow's torso. At first, he thought it was a dummy that had fallen out of the helicopter because there was no blood, and it felt kind of rubbery. But when he glanced over to the shore, he saw Vic's head lying over there, nearby. People began screaming, And suddenly an announcement came over the loudspeaker for everyone to abandon their equipment and their stations and to immediately go home. A fire safety officer covered Vic's body with a sheet and placed it on the riverbank. Then while making his way across the river to put out the fires from the village, he found Micah's head in the water. The helicopter was left in its place in order for investigators to do their work. Then arose the question as to whether or not to complete the movie. I'm sitting here thinking, no way, right? They're in the beginning stages. This has to be way too tragic of a thing to have happened to go on with this. Just scrap it. Even director Joe Dante didn't think they were going to finish it but in under two months' time, they were back at it, ready to finish what they had started. There was still uncertainty as to whether Landis's segment would be included in the final cut. Nobody thought it would stay in. The conversation centered around whether airing it would negatively affect the commercial reception of the film. In the end, it was decided to keep it in. According to Landis... He felt it would be a disservice to Vic Morrow if they had just left it out of the film completely. However, they did decide to not use any of the scenes with the children. And this did mean that the end of his segment would require a significant change in the storyline, one in which Vic's character remains trapped in his journey through time and space. As his becoming a hero and coming to a moral realization at the end was impossible to make now. The segment finished with the scene where Vic's character is being fired upon by American soldiers, and then suddenly one of them throws a grenade in his direction. Instead of killing him, the grenade plunges him back into Nazi-occupied World War II France again. It is then he is captured by the SS officers and put into a locked railroad freight car along with other Jewish prisoners. From the freight car, Bill can see his friends from the bar standing outside, looking for him, wondering where he's gone. He screams for help, but they are unable to see him or the train that pulls away with him locked inside. It wasn't quite the change-of-heart experience that had been intended for Bill Connor. The helicopter accident occurred on July twenty-third, 1982, at 2.30 in the morning, which is an issue I will address shortly. Vic, who was 51 years old at the time, enjoyed a career in entertainment that spanned almost 40 years. He played the role of Chip Saunders in the TV show Combat, and after that, He began his career directing off-Broadway productions, as well as a role in the production of A Streetcar Named Desire. He had made his film debut in 1955 in The Blackboard Jungle, and his other films included A Tribute to a Bad Man, Men in War, Portrait of a Mobster, and The Bad News Bears. He married actress Barbara Turner in 1957, but they divorced in 1965. They had two daughters, Carrie Morrow and Jennifer Jason Lee. Renee Chen was from Pasadena, California, and she was six years old. And Micah Dinley was from my hometown of Cerritos, California, and he was seven years old. As I'm recounting this part of the tragedy, the lives lost, you might be sitting here scratching your head, thinking that something really doesn't seem right about this whole thing. I mean, doesn't it seem kind of weird that these young children were on a movie set at that hour of the morning around this kind of moving equipment and explosives and stuff? It doesn't sound like that even should have been a thing, am I right? Well, technically, it is possible, but it is not easy. It came to light after the accident that John Landis was indeed in violation of child labor laws, by hiring a six- and seven-year-old without obtaining the required permits. Landis, along with the other members of his staff, were also responsible for several labor violations in connection with other people involved in the accident, none of which would have come to light if the helicopter accident hadn't occurred. Renee and Micah were being paid under the table to circumvent California's child labor laws, which did not permit children to work at night. Landis chose not to seek a special waiver because either he didn't think he would get the permission for such a late hour, which was 2.30 in the morning when the accident occurred, or he thought he would never get approval to have the young children as a part of a scene he was filming, or a large number of pyrotechnic effects and explosives were involved. The casting agents were not aware that the children would be included in the helicopter scene. Associate producer George Fulsey asked the children's parents to not tell any of the firefighters on the set that the children were part of the scene, and they also hid the kids from a fire safety officer who also worked as a social services worker. There was also a fire safety officer who grew increasingly concerned about the pyrotechnic effects and explosions could compromise the integrity of the helicopter, but he never voiced his concerns to Landis. As I see it, though, I don't think Landis would have done anything differently, even if that fire safety officer had spoken up. Vic Morrow's friend and former combat co-star was there that night and recounted Vic's last words to him before the big scene was shot. I've got to be crazy to do this shot. I should have asked for a double. This movie, the one Steven Spielberg had dreamed of making for decades, had just turned into a filmmaker's worst nightmare. It was an ambitious endeavor for these directors to combine their respective talents into one remarkable movie-making experience that is, until the early morning hours of that day. John Landis had to make that pre-dawn phone call to Steven Spielberg on July 23rd, 1982 to inform him of the tragedy that occurred on his watch. That Vic and Micah had been decapitated and Renee had been crushed by a falling helicopter. And with that, the Twilight Zone movie would be the last time Spielberg and Landis would ever work or speak to one another. The accident forever destroyed the two directors' friendship. Spielberg wanted out of this movie once Vic, Renee, and Micah had been killed on the set. He wanted nothing more to do with this movie, as the fact that these three people, especially two young children, died on the set was deeply disturbing to Spielberg who had been and is still known for working very in-depthly with children in many of his films. He voiced his desire to sever ties with the film, but a studio executive contacted Spielberg by phone, insisted that he not make any waves about the movie or the incident, and that him backing out would be like an admission of guilt on the part of the studio, and reminded him, that he had a contractual obligation to complete the film. Spielberg relented and ended up finishing his segment of the film. And as it would turn out, the completed film was not well received by critics. And it would mostly be a debate as to whose segment was more uninspired. Landis's doomed segment with an alternate dark ending inserted in place of the heroic ending that could never be Or Spielberg's, who was made to begrudgingly finish a film he desperately wanted out of. I haven't seen the movie. Maybe I'll watch it sometime in the near future. The Twilight Zone probably won't seem as weird and scary as it did when I was a kid. But I would only hesitate now, knowing what ended up happening to Vic and those children. Incidentally, the film footage that captured the accident is available online if anyone was curious enough to want to search for that and see for yourselves. I didn't watch it. I thought about it, and I talked about it too. But I came to the conclusion that I can't do it. It made me think back to the first time I had heard a podcast episode about Luca Magnata and anyone out there who listens to True Crime podcasts has likely heard about this man. His crimes have been featured on a number of podcasts, and the ones I've heard are on the Guilty Podcast, the True Crime Garage, and Sword and Scale. But the first time I heard this story was on True Murder with Dan Zupansky. And in case you haven't heard of Luca Magnata, consider yourself lucky. And it would probably be best if I refrained from recommending you to do so. But I'll give you a little bit of background anyway. He's this Canadian man who was convicted of killing and dismembering another man. He also cannibalized and mailed parts and he videotaped himself doing the killing and the other stuff. And I don't want to get too into it, but my point is that... A long time ago, I had asked Dan Zupansky on Facebook if he had actually watched the video, and he said that he had. And I asked him how or why he was able to bring himself to do that, and he told me that he felt it was necessary in order to do the story justice. Well, I'm not Dan Zupansky, and I don't have the guts to watch anything, but if you want to, it's out there. Anyways, the general reception of the movie was somewhat lukewarm at best. The general consensus has typically been mixed that Landis' and Spielberg segments were okay but mostly mediocre and Dante's and Miller segments were imaginative and enjoyable the way it's supposed to be for Twilight Zone fans. Roger Ebert in his review stated the surprising thing is the two superstar directors are thoroughly routed by two lesser-known directors, whose previous credits have been horror and action pictures. Some critics feel Spielberg's segment is the least successful out of the four, while others think Landis's is, not because of an anemic script, but because of the real-life tragedy that left a dark cloud looming over the whole thing. The script had been geared towards Vic Morrow's character engaging in a dialogue that suggests that he's done good things in life, but he's gone through, most of it, prejudice against other races. He's meant to come to a place of redemption, and in the end, overcoming his prejudices by saving these two young Vietnamese children, but he never got there. Instead, his character ends up captured by Nazis and then taken presumably to a death camp, with his friends looking for him, unable to hear his screams. Critics found it to be confusing and disturbing by trivializing the Holocaust, as well as having made it clear that Fick's character had been a Korean War veteran, who had been painted by the narrator to be a complicated and tragic figure, who really hadn't done anything in his life to warrant such a fate as being sent off to die in a gas chamber. The movie not only disciplined him, but followed that up with killing him in the end, leaving him to not ever having found the error of his ways, and then killing him off on screen, and then having him already killed off screen. It didn't go over well with critics. As the sentiment was the helicopter crash, the worst thing that could have possibly ever happened, happened, and it ruined just about everything. It ruined lives, it ruined families, it ruined the careers of everyone involved in the thing. It ruined the production of the movie, and to critics, it ruined Vic's performance in his final film. But interestingly enough, Landis didn't seem to think so. He eulogized Vic at his memorial service, stating, Tragedy can strike in an instant. But film is immortal. Vic lives on forever. Just before his last take, Vic took me aside and thanked me for the opportunity to play this role. If there is any consolation to this, it is this film is finished. This performance must not be lost. It was Vic's last gift to us. Then again, what was Landis supposed to have said? When he mentioned the part where Vic thanked him, that kind of read me the wrong way. Reminding Vic's loved ones that it was Landis who was generous enough to let him have the role like gee thanks John for letting all of this happen for Vic. As for Spielberg's segment, his was problematic as well. I read in a couple of articles that he hadn't been fully invested in the making of his part following the tragedy. He even had to change which episode of the Twilight Zone he was going to remake because of the helicopter crash. He originally was going to remake The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, but after the accident, he chose to avoid a segment that involved young children and explosives. So he instead remade the Twilight Zone episode, Kick the Can, which was described again by film critic Roger Ebert by saying, Spielberg's visual style in this segment is so convoluted and shadowy that the action is hard to follow. The master of clear-cut, sharp-edged visuals is trying something that doesn't work. In other words, Spielberg's segment was dull. I really couldn't imagine being in 1983 in watching that film in its totality and not constantly being reminded of the tragedy that overshadowed the whole thing. I discussed movie set accidents at the beginning of this episode. I talked about how these things are usually swept under the rug and the fines levied by OSHA are minimal considering the human cost. But this particular accident on the set of The Twilight Zone was not going to be so easily pushed out of the public consciousness that easily or that quickly. This was an accident that was not going to go away for Landis and the others on the set who chose to circumvent industry rules and standards for the sake of getting the shot just right. An investigation ensued and it dragged on for years. And then, nearly four years to the day that that helicopter came crashing down on Vic. Renee, and Micah, five people would be made to answer to criminal charges in their deaths, including director John Landis, who would become the first director in history to stand trial for a death on the set of a movie. And I am going to tell you all about what happens next in part two of the tale of the Twilight Zone disaster. However, If you simply cannot wait until next week, I will have part two available early for Patreon supporters very shortly after this episode goes live. To all of you who support California Dreaming on Patreon, I'd like to thank you for your support. I'm slowly but surely building the show and working to bring more special episodes and early releases for all of you who are patrons of the show. Many of you who have pledged support should have received a card with stickers and a refrigerator magnet. If you haven't, they should at least be on their way. But if I owe you some show perks, please don't hesitate to email me and let me know that you haven't gotten a card from me, and I'll drop one in the mail right away. My email is CaliforniaPod at Yahoo.com. And visit the Patreon page at www.patreon.com. Slash California Pod. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash California Pod, and for as little as one dollar, you can have early access to part two. There is an issue I wanted to address regarding episode twenty-one from last week, the tale of star lovers. A listener very graciously messaged me about my portrayal of Tyler Witt as a bratty fourteen-year-old who acted out because she wasn't getting her way. And by her way, I mean her mom forbidding her from seeing her boyfriend who was 19. The listener felt that I completely missed the mark, that I didn't give Tyler enough consideration or acknowledgement for the instances of abuse she endured at the hands of her mother. It was not my intention to skirt past a very serious issue such as this, And for that, I extend my apologies to anyone who felt that I in some way trivialized child abuse, as that wasn't my intention. I also apologize for not including in the warning at the beginning of the episode that it involved child abuse, which I understand can be a trigger for some. I should not have overlooked that. I should have also reiterated that I am not a psychologist, nor am I a mental health expert. And with that being said, much of what I had to say about Tyler Witt and the choices she made were merely my opinion, and I am absolutely more than willing to be open to discussion about the things I speak about. I know I can be a judgy person. I've addressed that early on in the podcast, and doing this definitely opens my eyes to diverse viewpoints. However, I will always stop short of victim-blaming. And it would be very difficult for me to sympathize with someone who did what Tyler did to her mom. Abuse or not, murder isn't really an option. I do appreciate the feedback. And of course, I appreciate getting perspectives from others. And I'm always happy to listen. Okay, so now moving on. As I've told you before, California Dreaming has now found a home at the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We have joined forces with some really fantastic shows like The Concession Stand, Busted Wide Open, Super Nerds UK, The Dirty Bits Podcast, Historium, Is This Adulting, and Film Roast. You can find me, along with the rest of my pod family, at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. I'd also like to thank everyone who has taken the time to leave me a review and I'm always going to offer show stickers to anyone who's left one, even if it isn't five stars. In case you like the show, but my voice annoys you, I can dig it. I'll send you a sticker too. Email me at californiapod at yahoo.com and we will work something out. Also, I've had somewhat of a long week and this episode is turning out to be longer and more involved than I had initially expected which is why I needed to divide it into two parts, and I hope it's coming together well. I was looking for some motivation to get this thing recorded, so earlier tonight, I turned to Twitter for some inspiration. So here are some shout-outs to those who gave me a like, a comment, a GIF, or a retweet tonight. True Crime Files, check out their blog. Murderish Podcast. Bless Us Mess Podcast, Rosie Cupcakes, R. Meyer, The Cleaning of John Doe Podcast. That's a new one that I just discovered. The Unresolved Podcast, Nicole Etherall, The Mad Asian Podcast, The Most Okayest Podcast, The Dark Divide Podcast, Incevable 1111, The Skelecast Podcast, Uncle Don Smalley, The Robin Slim Show, the Happily Ever Aftermath podcast, Marjorie Skein, Phil and Nick with My Thing Can Be Your Thing, the Gone Cold podcast, the True Crime Fan Club podcast, and she also hosts the We're Just Pretending podcast, Jessica Y, who is the host of the Mad Asian podcast, Cold Case Murder podcast, Hannah Edinger, and I think I've got all of you as of recording this. If I missed you, I'll start another thread for part two. Thank you all for all of the love on Twitter. And before you go, I have a couple of promos from some podcasts that I've recently discovered. The Affirmative Murder Podcast and Murder and Such. I will have them tell you about their shows. Take a listen. Hey, I'm Frank. And I'm Alvin. And we're just two guys trying to bring equality to true crime in our own weird way. So check out Affirmative Murder every Wednesday, where we bring you stories of minority serial killers who don't get any attention because they aren't creepy white guys. That's right, Affirmative Murder, the podcast dedicated to shedding a light on the darker side of true crime. Pun intended. My name is Hunter. And my name is Brittany. And we are the hosts of Murder and Such, a podcast about murders, death, serial killers, the macabre, and dark subject matter. Join us each episode while we take a more vulgar and explicit dive into cases that you may know and some you've never heard of. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, and most other podcast services. And be sure to follow us at Murder and Such on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We hope to hear from you soon stay weird thank you so much for joining me for this 22nd episode of California Dreaming I will see you in one week with part two unless you just can't hold off and must listen immediately then it will be up on Patreon for supporters at all levels within a day or two of when this episode drops in all the usual places. And until next time, sweet dreams.